Okay. Um, have you ever had one of those days where it gets to 8 o'clock in the morning and you think to yourself, I'm done. I'm just going to go back to bed and, and forget it. You get to 8 o'clock, maybe you've been up for two hours or an hour and a half or maybe just an hour, and you think, I've had a whole week's worth of tra- struggle and I'm just sick of it already. Yesterday uh, was kind of like one of those days. The morning had been all right, it hadn't been too bad. Um, and then I sat down thinking, oh, I'll just watch a bit of telly. It was about five o'clock before we go out. We're, we're at the mayor's quiz nights. And then Pat phoned up and ruined my afternoon um, with a flying gazebo. And I got home, I thought, I have a quick bath and we'll go to the quiz at the Bullfield Centre. And as I put my, my I took a, a cup of tea into the bathroom with me, I took a drink with me in there, I put my, my trousers on the, uh, on the radiator, getting warm when I got out. And, uh, and as I walked away, I knocked it with my hand and I spilt my drink all over my trousers. I wore them anyway. Because that's just the sort of guy I am. I think it's called being male. I really couldn't be bothered to... Uh, I, dr- I dried them off and hope they didn't smell too bad. Anyway, but maybe you've had a tough day this morning. Maybe you're going through a tough time. But maybe, you, I think if you th- feel like you're having a bad day, you probably need to look at some of the photos. Let's just have the first one up. You may feel like that this morning, 500% done with today, I'm already about 35% done with tomorrow. Okay, so the next one, if you're having a bad day, just think someone brought this watermelon. No? No, it's funny, I thought it was funny. Okay, next one, that poor dog underneath, you think they were having a bad day? Okay, next one. You didn't win through nothing. This is not going the way I thought it was at home this morning. It's snow inside. Do I have to explain it? If I have to explain every single one, it loses its comedic value. It's snow. So I left it, the window open. It snowed. Snow goes in. Never mind. Next one. Let's move on quickly. Quote of the day. If anyone is having a bad day, remember that today in 1976, Ronald Wayne sold his 10% share in Apple for $800. It's now worth $58 million. You think that's better anymore? Oh, yeah. Oh, you had a bad day, did you? That's cute. And that's a rubbish bit all over the floor. Last one, I think. When you're upset, just imagine a T-Rex trying to make a bed. Well, okay. Is it, is, yeah, I can't remember. Anyway, if you, you know you're having a bad day when your Rice Krispies give you the silent treatment. Should have start. Is that the last one? I think they called it a day there. Goodness. I, mean, I have visions of everyone la- roaring with laughter and... Never mind. Okay, the next, the next half an hour is going to be pretty tough. Anyway, uh, we'll work on that better for next week. Um, But the truth is, isn't it, that we do go through bad days. We do have difficult moments. We face struggles in life. One of the the only certainties in life is that all of us will face difficult moments, whether we like it or not. Whether it comes right at the end of our lives, sometimes it comes at the beginning, sometimes it's in the middle, concentrated, sometimes it's just lots of medium-sized bad things that happen right the way across. We all will go through struggles in life, and we thought it would be good just for two weeks, to think about struggle and how to get through it. So this week, I want to think a little bit about how we can cope with difficult times on an individual level, and next week we want to think about how we can help other people who are going through difficult times, how we can help each other. This week is about how ourselves can get through difficult moments. Obviously, this is very personal, and so I'm sorry if this is a difficult thing to think about this morning, or maybe you don't want to think about the struggles you go through. And it's really important that I say right at the outset, there is no simple, cute one-liner as to why things go wrong in someone's life. The first question people ask is why. Why is this happening? Why is God letting this happen to me? And the truth is, and I think it's okay to say, I don't know. I don't know why you're going through what you're going through. I don't know why you're going through what you're going through. 
And we have to be very careful, I think, as Christians, that we don't feel that we ride on the cavalry of a theoretical understanding of why someone may be going through what they're going through. It's very dangerous to answer the why question too quickly, I think. And it's okay, actually, sometimes to say, do you know what, I don't know. I just don't know. And I think people, when they say why, aren't necessarily looking for an answer more than they're looking for someone to get it off their chest too, to share with. They want our support, perhaps, rather than our theories. Not all the time, but some of the time. Saying that, I think it is helpful to have an idea of where trouble and hardship may come from in this world on that bigger level. Where does struggle come from? Where does it originate from? It's not a bad thing to have that in mind. And so uh, the first thing I want to say this morning is that when it comes to surviving hardship, it is good to know the origin of struggle, where struggle comes from. And so whilst we have to be very careful what we say when someone says, why am I suffering? I think we can and should, in our own mind, have a bit of a framework as to where bad things come from and why bad things do happen when they happen. And so I don't want to oversimplify. The problem with a topic like this is that you can oversimplify to kind of get through the points you want to make. So I hope if you think that's rushed that you'll go away and think about it or ask a question afterwards or say to me, say more about that next week or something like that. But there are three, in my mind, three main origins of trouble and hardship and struggle. And the first I'm going to go with is the devil. Uh, We don't often talk about the devil as Christians. I do not understand why. He is our great enemy, isn't he? Great enemy of the kingdom of God, the devil, the prince of darkness, the prince of this world, the Bible calls him. He is out there. He is real. A lot of people are happy to believe in God, but when it comes to the devil, I don't know, that sounds a bit weird. But if you believe in God, then you have to accept the existence of Satan as well, because um, why not? Why can't he exist? Jesus speaks of the devil quite a few times, and in John chapter 10, verse 10, he says this, the thief comes only to kill, sorry, to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have a life and have it to the full. The thief being the devil has come only to steal, kill and destroy, and I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. This morning, let me ask you, do you live life to the full? Do you even know what I'm talking about? You will only ever live life to the full by knowing Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. The devil prowls around, it says in the New Testament, like a roaring lion, looking to pick off the weakest and the most lonely, those who are on their own, unprotected. He looks for those who he can dig his claws into. He likes to cause disruption. He loves to throw temptation at us, pain in our lives. And so we must understand the role Satan plays in suffering. He is an enemy that you must fight against with your faith. So therefore, sometimes our physical problems are a spiritual struggle. Second thing we want to say about where suffering comes from is actually it comes from the fact of living in a broken, fallen world. We live in a world that is a mess, that is completely smashed to pieces. And we live in it, and therefore we experience that brokenness in our own life. Romans 8, verse 20 to 22, says this of our world. For creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in order that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole of creation, or that the whole creation, has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. We live in a world that is just broken. 
It is decaying. It is a mess. It is a fallen world. Our world is not perfect. We're not perfect. We are born with original sin. We're born in a broken relationship with God. Everything in us is broken from birth. And our world is broken on every level you can imagine. And we suffer pain sometimes simply because of existing in a world that doesn't work properly. Let me give you a really silly example. Uh, When my granddad died, we inherited his old table. A circular, uh, dark brown table. And um, it, my granddad had it, and my granddad had it for years. And we had it, and we had it in a little dining room area of the house we live in. And uh, we invited Andrew's parents over, and uh, we were all having dinner. And suddenly, halfway through, the whole thing went whoosh in the air. Sunday lunch went absolutely everywhere. And basically, we'd all lent on it at the same time, and then the whole thing had just detached from the legs. Now, is that sort of some sort of cosmic lesson being taught to us? Or is it just the fact that the table had decayed and someone lent on it? Sometimes things happen because you live in a world that is decaying and is broken. C.S. Lewis was asked the question, why do the righteous suffer? Do you know what this highly educated, eloquent Christian Christian man full of wisdom said? He said, why not? Why not? We live in a world where things break, where bones snap and hearts break and even minds are fragile. Part of the sin that entered the world with Adam and Eve affected all of God's perfect creation, the whole universe. So you've got the devil, you've got a fallen world. The third origin for sin, uh, for uh, struggle, is sin. And by that, I don't mean your own sin necessarily. We don't believe as Christians that if I sin, therefore I have some sort of Christian version of karma, where if I sinned at 10, I'm going to get some disease when I'm 50. We don't believe in that at all. Jesus was often asked, wasn't he, whose sin caused this man's disability, his or his parents? And Jesus would often say, no, no one's. We don't believe in that sort of idea of karma. In fact, we say that whole belief system is completely wrong. Completely wrong. Good doesn't outweigh bad or balance out good. That's not how it works. However, that being said, when we sin and deliberately choose to live a way that's contrary to God and what he has said expressly in his word, we can and probably should expect moments of pain through our bad choices. And equally, it's true to know that other people make sinful choices that will affect me. So, for example, Michael. If Michael decides the next person he looks at is going to punch, which is a sin, by the way, um, you shouldn't do that, and he happens to look at me and then punches me in the face, ouch, but I'm suffering because of his sinful choices. Fortunately, Michael likes me. Do you? Oh, good. Um, at least I think so. Anyway. Um, so... Uh, All that being said, that's just knowledge. It doesn't help you deal with the struggles you might be going through. It doesn't help you um, get through difficult days. Although I do believe it might help prepare for them when they're yet to come. I'm a great believer in being forearmed and forewarned and prepared for when things go wrong in my life. I'm not one of these Christians that think just because I'm a Christian, I've got some sort of let out and get out for trouble and strife. I could die tomorrow. I could get a disease. I could lose a member of my family. Anything can happen to me. Just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean that doesn't happen. We live in the same world as everybody else. And so how can we help ourselves struggle with pain? Well, another thing I want to say is that we should probably broaden our understanding on suffering itself. We're going to get a bit more personal as we go on, but I want to think about that because if I was to say the statement, all suffering is bad, you'd probably, most of you, nod. Yes, of course it's bad, and of course it's too bad. But perhaps that's a bit too simplistic. All suffering is, of course, not God's intention. 
But most of us would note, wouldn't we, that with hindsight, sometimes the great positive changes to our character have come actually in how we've responded to something we've struggled through. The struggle itself is wrong. The struggle itself is not of God. But actually our response to it can be a great work of God. So that's perhaps a bit too simplistic just to say all suffering is terrible. I read a quote from an older man this week I thought was quite good. He writes this, Contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say that with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world Everything that has enhanced and enlightened my experience has been through affliction and not happiness. Is that not why Western Europe, with all of its happiness and its pleasures and its comfort, has become more ungodly than other parts of the world that suffer all the time and keep their faith alive? That, of course, doesn't encompass every area of suffering. There are some terrible things that happen, and you can say nothing good comes out of this. But maybe there's always something that can come out of something. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, one of my favourite bits on this topic. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. Character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 6 to 7. Again, Peter writes, In all this you greatly rejoice, Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Suffering can produce unexpected blessings. And that's often, in fact, moments in our lives when we see God's hand more clearly. People's faith often comes alive when they face the abyss of pain because they know they can no longer trust themselves and they lean on their creator as they're created to. Romans chapter 8 verse 28, well-known verse, says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. 2 Corinthians 4.17, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We must also remember that nothing happens outside of God's sovereignty. That is an amazing thought and one that raises lots of questions. But everything that happens to us happens underneath the sovereignty of God. Nothing happens outside of God's sovereignty. And whilst I don't always understand that, because I think, well, if you're sovereign, Lord, I don't understand why that's allowed to happen. That's a whole other question. But actually, it should make you think this is happening and God knows about it. This is happening and God's with me even if I don't know why it hasn't been stopped. But it means that I go through my suffering, not alone, because God is with me. And so how can we uh, cope with our struggles better? Let's get a bit more personal. Well, I think what we need to do is not lose heart. 
It's true that once you lose heart, once you sort of give up inside, then your suffering wins. I'll tell you about an experiment on two mice. There aren't any people from the uh, RSPCA. Is it RSPCA? It is. Um, I didn't do the experiment, so you can judge the people that did it. They wanted to see the effect of hope on someone's life. I've probably told this story again before. But anyway, they had two mice, and they wanted to see um, how long they'd keep swimming uh, with, with hope and without hope. Um, I must warn you, both mice died in this illustration. I'm sorry, um, but I didn't kill them. So the first mice was dropped in the water, and they saw how long he swam for. I can't remember, but let's say, let's say 15 seconds. No, 20 seconds, because he really tried. So 20 seconds, he was like that, and then, you know... Then he died. That was the end of him. That was a mouse impression. Then they put the second mouse in. And every 10 seconds, they took him out for five seconds. And they put him back in. And that mouse was able to swim for about three minutes before he too went the way of that way. Anyway, but the point is, the first mouse lost hope, you could say. You could say the first mouse thought, what's the point? I'm getting tired. I'm never going to survive. And he gave up. Second mouse, you could say, thought to himself, just maybe, if I keep on, I might just get through this. And I think when we lose heart, that is when suffering becomes very dangerous. That is when our troubles overwhelm us. That is when we drown in our darkness. You see it in older people all the time, don't you? They're married 50, 60 years, their partner passes away, and suddenly they're on their own in the house. They've got to do all the work on their own. They don't know what they're doing. My, my nan and granddad, when my nan died, my granddad... A light went out in his eyes. He'd refer to her as his navigator. And he'd say to me, I've lost my navigator. And you know that meant more than the map in the car. And it was so sad. And he he just sort of gave up. I mean, he carried on for a few years, bless him. But often you get a partner that follows on as they pass away when their wife or husband dies. And so we mustn't lose heart. So how can we not lose heart when we go through struggles as human beings? Well, let me tell you something. I am not qualified to answer that question. I'm not remotely qualified to tell you how to not lose heart when you go through difficult times. And the reason I'm not remotely qualified is, although I've had difficult moments in my life, I am yet to face the abyss of suffering that will threaten to destroy me if I give in to it. I'm yet to face that. I'm sure I will. But as yet, thank the Lord I haven't. So I'm not qualified to say anything about not losing heart when we suffer. But I know a man who can. A man named Job in the Old Testament. A man whose name you're familiar with. Job uh, is one of the earliest books in the Old Testament. Uh, Job was an amazing man. This is a very unique book. We get uh, a glimpse of heaven and the devil and interactions in the heavenly realms that we don't really see anywhere else really. And so it's the most amazing book. And Job was an amazing man. And so if you've got Job chapter 1 open, that would be brilliant. I'm going to read the first five verses to you. Um, They'll appear on the screen anyway. But Job chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, says, In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job, um, or Job. Um, um, This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. He was the greatest among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. 
Earlier in the morning, early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. Job was three things. He was rich, he was respected, and he was righteous in that sense. This is a unique story, and we discover from our framework of where suffering comes from that his suffering came from the devil. Satan tests him, Satan attacks him. Um, He loses his children, verses 18 and 19. He loses his flocks and his servants, verses 14 to 17. And then he loses his health, uh, chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. He suffered an unprecedented agony and pain, and he ached. He ached and ached and ached, and he ranted and he raved and he complained. And across all the way up to chapter 37, Job just says out loud how he's feeling. And yet he keeps going. The one thing he doesn't do is lose heart. He's depressed and he's down and he's fed up and he's angry, but he doesn't lose heart. He doesn't give up. And there are five things that I think we can learn from the story of Job that may help you and help me this morning when we go through struggles. Five things that Job did. So these are from someone's actual experience that I think helped him not give up as he went through difficult moments. The first thing Job did is worship. I think it's the most amazing thing. So in verse 19 of chapter 1, he's told um, of the death of his children. And then verse 20, at this, Job got up, tore his robes, shaved his head, and then he fell on the ground in worship. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May May the name of the Lord be praised. How amazing is that? The first thing he does is worship God. It's not often our first response. But some of you here already know from experience that when you've gone through struggles, it's been in that secret place, in that place of worship, that you've found healing and comfort and consolation from the King of Kings. Some of you already know what Job did and why he did it. And so I really want to encourage you, if you're going through difficult moments this week, to make it a priority to worship God. It may feel odd praising God for his goodness, thanking him for his kindness and his graciousness when everything seems to be crumbling. But it is in worship that we grow grow close to our God. I encourage you to sing the truth, even if your heart's screaming, what? Sing it. Sing it like you mean it. Convince yourself that you believe it, even if you're not sure. Sing it because it's true. Let God hide those things in your heart. Go for a walk and talk. Just talk to your God. Worship him like that. Be at church every week. Don't hide from your Christian brothers and sisters. Don't hide from this gathering. This is the most important thing we do all week. Sunday morning, worshipping together is the most important thing. This is where we need to be when we're struggling. Don't worry if you cry. Don't worry if you can't hold yourself together. Sit at the back. Come in late. Go home early if you want to. But you don't even have to do that. You can even sit in the hall where you can still hear the sermon and hear the singing if you don't think you can sit in here with us. Read your Bible, pray, focus on the king as much as you can. The second thing Job did was he remained holy. We read in that next verse on from worship, verse 22 of chapter 1. In all this, Job did not sin sin by charging God with wrongdoing. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. It's easy for us to think, I'm so angry, I'm so frustrated, I'm just going to... 
shout at my wife or shout at my husband or, or shout at the kids or I'm going to say that word or I'm going to watch that thing or do that thing. But Job kept his holiness as best he could. He didn't curse God. Even his wife said, just curse God and die. But he didn't, did he? He kept on honouring God and following God. You see, unholiness never heals anybody. Whereas holiness is where we draw closer to God and what builds us up. So worship, be holy. Don't use your pain as an excuse to sin. Number three, he speaks. The thing I love about the book of Job is across all these chapters, up until God speaks in chapter 37 or 38, I think it is, Job is just talking over and over and over to God himself. And he talks honestly. He doesn't dress up his words because others are listening. Three of his friends are listening. He just says, I don't get it. He's angry. He shakes his fists at heaven and God can handle it. He never dishonors God. He never sins at God. But he is honest with God. I know Christians who go through the most terrible things and you say, how are you? And do you know what they say? I'm all right. And you think, no, you're not. How can you possibly be all right? And it worries me that those same people in prayer say to God, I'm all right, Lord. If you wear a mask in prayer, then you really are in trouble. You must be the bluntest you can be with your God because he can handle it, because he loves you and wants to hear your honest words. The fourth thing Job has is a support network. In chapter 2, verse 12, or verse 11, shall I say, it says, um, when Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shumite, and Zophar, the Naamite, sorry, I should have practiced those, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him. Because they saw how great his suffering was. What I love, we're very quick to decry Job's three friends. Rightly so. They said some ridiculous things and some very unhelpful things. However, if you just ignore that for a second, Job had three people to talk to. If you just take the point of that. And maybe if you're going through difficult moments, you need to realise that you can't do it on your own. That you need other people to share your pain with. That's why we have a prayer team after our church service, not because they have all the answers, because these are people that you can just say, I've had a terrible week. You can cry if you want or not. You can just sit there in silence, let them pray. You don't have to say a single word, but a problem needs to be shared so that you don't carry the burden on your own shoulders. And the final thing he does is trust in God's majesty. Right at the end of Job, we can't read it all, God finally speaks. And when God speaks, he actually sort of tells Job off a bit. Um, and he sort of thunders from heaven at Job and he reminds Job not of why he's suffering. He doesn't answer the why question at all. What God says to Job is, this is how powerful I am. This is my majesty. This is my sovereignty. I'm in charge of the weather. I'm in charge of this and that and this and that. Were you there when I did that? Do you know how I keep the snow? All these things. God reminds Job of his ultimate majesty and might and power. And Job bows the knee and trusts in the power of God. What a great lesson that is. God may never say, here's why, but God will always remind you of who I am, who he is. Our trust isn't only when we know why things go wrong. Our trust needs to be in the one who is powerful over everything, even if we don't understand 
what may or may not be happening. And so today, there are no cute one-liners to take away if you're struggling. But what there is is a God who offers you access, access into his presence, to his rest, to his power and his sovereignty, might and majesty, to a relationship with the king who promises to walk with you through darkness and to a saviour, a saviour who knew suffering like you do, who overcame that suffering. And if you stay close to that saviour, make him your king, you will overcome as well. Of that I will promise you. Only you must stay close. That is the only answer, to have Jesus Christ as closer than a brother. Should we pray? Father God, we want to lift up, Lord, just these thoughts. Lord, it's a Pandora's box, to, to use that analogy, Lord. Lord, when we talk about suffering, we know that, Lord, we just scratch the surface sometimes as Christians. Father, there's so much that we can say, so much, Lord, that we want to say that we can't fit into a talk on a Sunday morning. But, Lord, I thank you for people like Job. Lord, I thank you that even though he lost everything, Father, one, you restored to him everything he'd lost. But, Lord, he is a great example of what we can do to not lose heart. I pray, Father, for any here this morning who are going through genuinely tough struggles. Father God, may they know that the answer to the why question isn't going to bring them the strength they need to face it. Only that proper relationship with you will be the one that helps. I pray for any here, Lord, on the verge of losing heart. Lord, they will come again to you, bow the knee, hear your majesty, see your might, and bow the knee and trust in your goodness and your power, knowing that you have it all in your hand. And Father, I pray that for those who are genuinely on the edge, that you would help them to overcome and overcome soon. Lord, bless us as a community. Lord, may we never just see a smile, but not the pain behind it. May we be honest with each other. May we care for each other and ask more than, how are you? But Lord, actually make a point of asking, how are you? Father God, may this church never just be a place to talk about the weather and the football. May we share our lives with each other. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.